I'm glad to be here. Glad uh, your pastor asked me to come, and uh, hopefully we'll enjoy our time together. We're looking at John chapter 19 this morning. Um, kind of worked out great. God has uh, perfect plans, and uh, had you guys do communion this morning with this fitting message on the crucifixion. So um, we'll have a good time looking at this passage together. Our church did a study in the book of John this past fall, and our pastor, uh, Gary DeSalvo, he gave us great insight on the trial of Jesus. He talked about the trial of Jesus, and he talked about going before Pilate and, and these really mock trials that they did to kind of usher him through to crucifixion. And one thing that he said uh, really stood out to me. He says, uh, a lot of people talk about this being Jesus before Pilate, but it's really, if you look at the dialogue, it's really Pilate before Jesus in this interaction. He referred to Pilate as being convicted, challenged, yet unchanged. My prayer today is that after looking at the details of the crucifixion, you will be convicted, uh, challenged, and forever changed after looking at this uh, crucifixion. Now, we live in a culture today that has a lot of uh, decisions based on feeling. We have a lot of emotions going on inside of us. All you have to do is look at social media and you see that uh, it, it doesn't take much for our, our culture just to get angry at things. Maybe you yourself get ticked off easily. Maybe you've had to take a break from social media sometimes because things get under your skin easily and your emotions get worked up. And your emotions get really upset and you don't know what to do with yourself. And in this situation, a lot of times we make poor decisions emotionally in our families, in our kids, in our school, in our sports, whatever it is. Emotions that rule our lives and we're ruled by emotions, it's usually not a good thing. Unfortunately, this carries over in how we approach Christianity. A lot of times with Christianity, it's I don't feel that, or I didn't feel anything in the service today. I didn't feel good about this. And we base a lot of what we decide on feeling when the reality is it, 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 there are feelings, yes, and we can get excited about things, but if we base our spiritual walk and our, our Christianity on, on feelings, then we're going to be let down a lot. We're going to be in trouble. And so I'd like to give you guys some facts, first of all, that might encourage you instead of just thinking about feelings, maybe some, some facts that would help you kind of as you go and along in life and would encourage you. There are 332 prophecies written about Jesus in the Old Testament. 332 prophecies. You think about prophecy, around 60 specific prophecies deal with Jesus' death, which we're talking about today. Sixty prophecies alone just about Jesus' death. The odds of anyone fulfilling this many prophecies about them are astronomical, as you can see on the screen. You think of it this way. Back in the fall, the, the odds of winning the $1.6 billion jackpot in the lottery, the odds of doing that was 1 in 302 million. All right? 1 in 302 million you should have played it 302 million times and you would have been good. $1.6 billion, that's good math, right? But you think about it, this woman in South Carolina hit these numbers, and that's a crazy odds, right? Well, the odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight of these 60 prophecies was that number on the screen, 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 in 100 quadrillion. 
That's the odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the prophecies written about him. Based on a detailed study by a mathematician named Dr. Peter Stoner. Stoner goes on to say that many, that many silver dollars, so imagine silver dollar, imagine that in your hand. And you got that many silver dollars, 100 quadrillion silver dollars, and imagine them spread across the entire state of Texas two feet deep. You have all these silver dollars spread across the state two feet deep, and I, I bring these young people, one of these young people up on the stage because I've got to pick on them, and I bring one on the stage, and I give them a blindfold, and I say, you get to go out anywhere in Georgetown, or you can walk all the way to Austin, wherever you want, and you can only bend down one time to pick up a silver dollar, and there's only one with an X on it. Only one. Your chances... Your chances of picking up one silver dollar with an X on it are the same chances as one person fulfilling only eight of those prophecies. Hundred quadrillion silver dollars across the state of Texas. But we can see in Scripture and in history that Jesus did it. If you go further, the odds of fulfilling all 60 is one, I didn't have the room on the screen, but it's one with 157 zeros after it. One to the 10th power with 157 zeros after. That's the number. We're going to look at our passage today. In our passage alone, in John chapter 19, Jesus fulfilled eight of these prophecies. So let's look at John 19, verse 17 together. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. and It was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. 
For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So you see in that reading the different prophecies that took place in the Old Testament. And they all came true. These prophecies come from Psalms, Isaiah, and Zechariah, these specific eight prophecies mentioned in this passage. Of all other religions, if you did a study on all other religions in this world that have ever existed, and you did a study on prophecy, and those that have said things are going to happen that didn't really happen, of all those prophecies, only one actually came true of all other religions. And that was that the prophet Muhammad would return to Mecca. That's it. You can study him all you want, and you won't see in history another prophecy fulfilled that was talked about. Yet Jesus fulfilled 60 prophecies just about his death. So hopefully that encourages, uh, encourages you this morning. You know, at the time of Jesus' arrest, the Jews, they preferred the method of stoning as their capital punishment. So the Jews, if someone was in trouble and if they had the authority, they were able to stone somebody to death. But because they were under Roman rule, they had to submit to the Romans. And the Romans, they preferred something more gruesome, which was crucifixion. And if you do a study in history and go way back, you can go back to the Old Testament and actually see traces of crucifixion all the way back to the Medes and the Persians and the Egyptians. They actually had crucifixion. But the Romans were known to have perfected it. What a morbid thing to be known for. But they were known to actually have perfected what they would call the art of crucifixion. And they were able to do this in a way that drew out the most excruciating experience for the person that was being put to death. So this is where Jesus found himself. So they came before Pilate, the Roman governor, and that's how he ended up being crucified in fulfillment of David's prophecy. So we look at some of these parts of this passage, and we can break it down in a few parts. The first one is the cross and the crowd and the craziness surrounding this event. First of all, the cross. We see that Jesus carried the cross on his back, this wooden cross. And there's images throughout this message this morning that you'll hear of images of the Old Testament because the Old Testament, all it does is point to Jesus if you really study it. Over and over again, the things that are taught there are really pointing ahead to the coming Messiah. And so we see in this moment when Jesus is carrying this wooden cross, it brings us back to Abraham and Isaac when, when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son. And, and what did he do? He, he said, all right. He didn't beg or ask God or argue with him. He's like, all right, my only son, let's go. And you see in that story that Isaac even carried the wood for his own sacrifice. And that was a picture looking ahead to what Jesus would do someday, one day where he carried that wood on his back for his own cross. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for it. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that comes from Deuteronomy. And so it's important for us to see that Jesus paid that curse for us and then we see also in the crowd a lot going on here in the city. Hebrews 13, 12, and 13 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So when you have a sacrifice, again, going back to the Old Testament, when you have a sacrifice, God made a law where when these people, or these, these animals were sacrificed, they had to burn them outside the camp. They couldn't stay inside. They'd be unclean. And so they took Jesus outside the gates of the city, and here he is being crucified outside the gate. They gathered at the place of a skull, and there's a picture up there on the screen that kind of shows, uh, I think the next one, yeah, that if you look up there on the, kind of the right toward the top, you see an actual picture of where, right near where Jesus was crucified. And you can see maybe why it was called the place of the skull, the cutouts of the two eyes. And previously, he actually had like even a nose there uh, that made people see, hey, this is the place of the skull. It's pretty obvious right in front of your face. So here's Jesus. This is where he was crucified. And crowds of people, you have to understand, this was during the Passover, right? So there were people coming from nations all around to, to remember and celebrate the Passover. So this road, it was a main road in and out of the city. This wasn't some uh, remote place Jesus was crucified. It wasn't like in the, in the backwoods somewhere. This is Jesus on the main road, just like on 35 out here, being crucified at the place of the skull. So they were coming in and out of the city. This kind of explains the sign that Pilate had made that said, Jesus, King of the Jews. Of course, the Jewish leaders didn't want that. They wanted him to say, he said he was King of the Jews. And I think by then, Pilate was fed up with these Jewish leaders and kind of partially convinced that he might be the Son of God, but not changed. So he said, I I wrote what I wrote, and he wrote it in three different languages. So because of this popularity of this celebration and people coming in and out, they could come by and actually see this sign written in in any of their three languages that they spoke and that they understood and see that he said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And then we also have the cross, the crowd, and then the craziness that's happening. you got almost like a festival atmosphere because of this Passover. And you have the gambling for his clothing at the foot of the cross, which actually wasn't uncommon. This was actually known to happen often. When someone was crucified, they would gamble for their clothing. But for him, his garment was, was still in one piece, which again was a fulfillment of prophecy. And so here he is, uh, the, the garments being gambled for at the foot of the cross. But we have to understand something when it comes to this garment. In our uh, Christian culture and in our history as a church, we've really cleaned up the cross. We've come to a point where uh, we can put pictures of Jesus on the cross in our own uh, buildings and in our foyers and in our living rooms, and we don't really see and experience the graphic nature of the cross. We don't really get the picture that Jesus was torn to shreds, and he was naked on the cross. He was not covered up by some cloth. He he didn't look like you and I. We picture him as some white guy on the cross when in reality he was much darker than us. And we have this cleaned up picture of Jesus that kind of looks like us so that we can handle it better. And the reality is this, it's not so we can handle it better. What we should see in the cross is a gruesome thing. A humiliating thing. 
our Savior, who was on that cross, and he was naked. His body ripped to shreds, hanging on that cross. That's what we need to see, and I think for us, it's, it's difficult for us to imagine because of maybe how we've grown up or because of how our churches have, have kind of portrayed this over the years. You know, I, I grew up, uh, my dad's a pastor. He's been a pastor over 40 years at the same church up in Philadelphia. And uh, I've seen portrayals of, of the crucifixion of Jesus on the stage. I've seen them. Uh, UMHB is up near us in Belton, and they do a, 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 an Easter replay and things like that. So I'm sure some of you have seen those. But of course, those really don't do it justice because I think what happens oftentimes is... Uh, we, we don't really experience the agony. Now, when I say agony, I think all of us probably go to physical. I don't know if you've ever done a study on the crucifixion and you, you hear about the, the nails that were placed or pounded into his wrist and, and his hands and, and then his feet and then the thorns this long shoved down onto his skull. The, the, the whip that just shredded his body before he even approached the cross. All of us, we focus on that physical, and which is natural as humans to do that. But I think what I have a hard time with, and maybe you do as well, is really imagining the deeper pain that he's experiencing, which is rejection by his father. The fact that he can't talk to his father. That he can't have that communion that he had. And this pain and agony that he's about to experience from his father far exceeds the physical pain that we understand and we remember when we look at the cross. When I was thinking about that, I was thinking about my dad. My dad uh, is, a, is a great dad. I, I love growing up in, in his home. And um, he always took time to bring us to the park. We were always going to the park. And I'm the youngest of four kids, and so uh, we're really close in age, so we really annoyed my mom a lot. And I say we, but really it was me <laughs> uh, being the youngest. Uh, I don't know if anybody's the youngest out there, but I really tortured my mom. So when my dad would come in from work or doing whatever, uh, I often imagine him and my mom saying, hey, they're all yours, take them. And I actually think I heard that sometimes, but uh, get them out of here. And so we'd go to the park, we'd hang out, and we'd go to different places, and there was one park we'd always go to, and uh, there was a situation where some guys, I think they were high school age or maybe college, they were saying things around us that were inappropriate, doing things that I didn't even know, you know, what was happening, but I knew my dad didn't like it, and that he didn't want these guys there. So he actually comes up to these guys, and my dad's no, no joke, you know, when it comes physically. He's not, like, huge, but he actually he played football at the Naval Academy for you Texas people, for you Cowboy fans. He broke all of Roger Stahlbeck rec Stahlbeck's records at the Naval Academy. Just, just throwing that out there. Uh, sorry. Uh, for those of you who are younger, ask your parents who he was. He was pretty cool. Uh, so, so he's on the playground, and he's already asked these guys nicely, and they're still there doing their thing, and probably even doing it worse. He goes over and grabs this dude by the hair in the back of the pants, and he throws this guy off the playground. Now, today he'd probably been arrested really fast, and I asked him about this, and he goes, actually, I was scared I'd get in trouble back then. That was a while ago. But he chucks this guy off the playground, of course, as a, a real coward, he goes up onto the hillside with his buddies and starts cursing at my dad from there. 
But uh, I remember picturing that and picturing the love that my dad had, the relationship that we had, the closeness that we had. And I imagine like in this, in this thinking about this situation, imagine that being cut off without notice. I understand as you get older, and my dad's in his 70s, I understand how things work with life, but in that moment as a young kid, imagine having that just cut off. And some of you maybe can relate to this. Maybe you've had a relationship cut like that. Maybe a death or, or a divorce or something like that where it was just gone. And maybe you can relate in this way where just immediately Jesus is experiencing this heart-wrenching experience of a closeness with God, His Father, being gone. No more. And it's over. And He cannot relate to His Father. And for us as humans, it's difficult to understand, but for God the Son to experience that, man, the pain was so much more than physical. So, We've looked at this uh, crowd and craziness and cross, but let's think about also the friends and family at the scene. If you look at verse 25 to 27, there's a lot of detail packed in three verses about who is there. We have friends mentioned, uh, women, the women that were mentioned at the cross. We have one in particular, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. She was possessed by seven demons and she needed release from these demons. And Jesus just got rid of these, these demons and she became, obviously, I don't know about you, but probably would become a devout follower of the man who just cast out seven demons from her. She's at the foot of the cross. It's important to note that there's 11 disciples left after Judas, right? 11 of them. And only one is actually recorded at the foot of the cross the guy writing this story, this account of what happened. But these women, four of them, are mentioned in this passage at being at the foot of the cross. What great courage and faith they had. You know, due to unfortunate oppression and subjugation of women over the years, some people who claim to know Jesus and are even leaders in the church have given Christianity a bad name. However, throughout Scripture, we can find the inclusion and the crucial roles and the impact of women in the spread of the gospel and foundation of the church to this very day. Over the history of the church, unfortunately, women have been put in a place that really shouldn't just be regulated to or relegated to. And for oftentimes, we see uh, society sees the church looking at women in a lower form for some reason. When the reality is, if you look at Jesus' life and his ministry, women were right there with him. And women were actually outnumbering the men four to one at the foot of the cross. They had a crucial role in the gospel. And John makes sure to highlight this. His other disciples, the other John and James, guess what? They weren't there. These guys who even had their mom, if you, if you remember, this is a great story. I got to preach on this one time. Uh, they, they get this situation where they really want to be at Jesus' right hand and left hand. They want to be the in crowd. And you know what they get? They get mommy to ask Jesus, right? Hey, mom, can you go over and ask Jesus if we can sit at his right and his left? And remember what Jesus says in Mark 10, 35 to 37. He goes, you do not know what you're asking. And I'm sure they're sitting there just like I would be. I'm just like, I know what I'm asking. I want to be up front. I want everybody to see me with you. I want everybody to see me with you doing the miracle thing and all that great stuff you've been doing, right? 
Put me up there with you. And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking because what Jesus is picturing, he's picturing his right and his left like this on the cross. He's picturing persecution. He's picturing ultimate death. They're picturing glory, praise, and pride. And instead, Jesus says, "Uh, you don't know what you're asking. The next time, though, they will know. Because even though they're not at the foot of the cross, they will experience death, these two guys, these brothers. And they will experience persecution and pain and ultimate death. Peter, he wasn't there either. Prophetic words of Jesus came true and he went and denied Jesus. Again, he was restored, but what was his end? Ultimate death. Sounds depressing. But the reality is this, when we follow Jesus... We aren't we are called to something easy. We're not called to something that is smooth sailing. When we follow Jesus and we commit our lives to Him and we embrace the Gospel, guess what comes? Pain. Heartache. Persecution. Being lonely. Doesn't sound great, does it? But it is. The persecution, the pain, all those things are worth it. Paul says that time and time again that it's worth it because of the gospel. And we see that mentioned here. So what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Death and persecution. Welcome to the journey of the gospel. We also see family here mentioned. It's interesting that he includes the family and includes especially his mother in this passage. He talks about his mom and The kindness of Jesus' words to his mother is important for us to note. When Jesus was uh, doing his first miracle in the wedding of Cana, Jesus is doing this miracle, and uh, it's before he did the miracle, his mom comes up to him, and he's like, she's like, hey, the wine's running out. Can you do something? Kind of shows us that Jesus may have done some things before. Uh, It's just not recorded because she's like, hey, hook us up here. We're running out. And then he he says something that's interesting. He uses a word uh, for his mom that's not really a respectful word. He just says, woman, my time has not come yet. It sounds kind of disrespectful. This is mom asking him something, right? My mom would have probably slapped me. I don't know if I said that to her. But in this situation, it's the same word used here from the cross, woman. And what he's doing in this moment is he's separating being the son of Mary and he's helping her understand he's also her savior, her potential savior. He's making a distinction between being his, her son and being her savior. And so when he says woman from the cross, it's not putting her down in verse 26. She says, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What a powerful, sweet moment that happened on the cross. The utter agony we've already described. And here he is on the cross thinking of his mom. And basically saying to John, the writer of this passage, hey, take care of her. And he says, "Here, here uh, this is your son, John. Now he's your son and he's going to take care of you. And she, he watched over her the rest, the rest of that time that they were together. So he helped her see that it wasn't just a mother-son love anymore. Now it's a savior. A savior, believer love. So there they are at the cross. Uh, Ken Geyer 
wrote Intimate Moments with a Savior. And this is a great quote from one of his, his book there. But love never looked like this. Pools of blood beating the dirt beneath the cross. A heavy spike through the feet. Ribs protruding against the skin. Open wounds bothered by flies. Eyes swollen with fever. Hair matted from this morning's thorns. Hands raised to God on splintered wood. A slumped torso dangling from impaled wrists like some grotesque pendant. It is more than a mother can bear, but somehow she does, largely because of the man standing beside her, steadying her, John, the disciple Jesus loves. So that's the friends and family. And then lastly, we can look at some quotes, some statements from the cross. First one we see in verse 28 is, I thirst. It says, I thirst. It's important for us to understand that this fulfilled prophecy, but I think it goes more than just physical thirst. Tim mentioned that uh, you guys played football yesterday, and some of you may have been really thirsty after running maybe five minutes. But you were probably saying, I need some water, I need some Gatorade, something to quench my thirst. I'm thirsty. And we think physical, right? Again, here with this passage, we think physical first. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. This is Jesus, once again, remember, losing the presence of God. Remember David who wrote, As a deer pant for the water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. And here's his own son losing that relationship at that moment. And he's thirsting not just physically, but spiritually as well. The water of life, the presence of God was taken from him. And he also says, It is finished. Three of the most powerful words ever written in Scripture. What is finished? Well, Luke 22, verse 44 and 45 says, It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So he mentions this specifically to help us understand there's a period there. He says it is finished and darkness comes in the middle of the afternoon. Imagine that. You go out of here, you eat lunch, and all of a sudden it goes dark. Not just dark from the clouds covering the sun like a storm coming, but darkness where you can't see your hand in front of your face. And it gives us a picture back into the Old Testament again when Moses was standing before Pharaoh and Pharaoh had those plagues coming. And every time he rejected and hardened his heart and here comes darkness. And Moses said darkness is going to come over the face of the earth. And it wasn't just darkness. It was so thick you could feel it. And this is what's happening, this picture here, after Jesus says it is finished, darkness fell over the face of the earth. And for us, it's a picture of what we see when, or maybe we have seen when we've come to Jesus, a darkness in our heart, a darkness in our lives that can be felt, the weight of sin on our shoulders. And we need the light to come in our lives and transform us and show us our need for Jesus and change us. And this is what happened at the cross. We see Jesus as the ransom. He says, the debt is paid. It is finished. It's like saying the debt has been paid. The debt of sin that we owe, the separation from God, it has been paid because of His sacrifice. So, He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit in verse 30. It's important for us to highlight that no one took His life from Him. Nobody took Jesus' life. He gave His Spirit up for us on the cross. 
we see in these final moments in verse 31 to 37, we see the breaking of the bones. Even in these moments when they already shattered, all these religious leaders shattered their own rules in preparation for the Passover. If you do a study on it, they broke a lot of their own laws leading up to this. But yet they were really concerned about this one law that, that people put on the cross could not still remain up there uh, when it came to the next day when they were celebrating the Passover. So they had to get these guys off the cross. They couldn't do any work that next day. So they had to get them removed before darkness fully came on that evening. So here they are worried about that. So to expedite the process of the death of, of the criminals and the death of Jesus, they were, uh, the custom was to break their legs. So they broke their legs so that they couldn't breathe anymore because they were pushing down on their feet to get a breath. And they'd push up, get a breath, and then slouch back down. So they were using all their, their leg muscles and the ability to push off their feet and breaking of the legs cut that ability off and expedited their death. And so here they go. They go to the criminals. They break their legs, but when they come to Jesus, they realized he had already said it is finished. He had already given up his spirit. Nobody's taking his life from him. They didn't break his bones. Once again, another prophecy fulfilled. Nobody broke his bones. So, we've got the piercing of the side. It's interesting that John devoted four verses to the piercing of the side. We don't have a lot of time to get into it. We've got to finish up. But, it's important to note that he highlights this with four verses to help people understand, I was there. I was an eyewitness. He says it in the Scripture. These things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He says before that, he says, I want to give this testimony that it's true and that you may believe I was there. And he talks about the spear going into the side. And when the spear went into Jesus' side, the water flowed. It's interesting that he mentioned that. And again, it goes back to an Old Testament reference when Moses was with the people and they were complaining, surprise, surprise, the people were complaining. I don't know if you, you have any kids that complain sometimes. Maybe you complain a lot to your kids. I don't know. But the situation was pretty bad where they're complaining once again. I thirst. I thirst. I'm so hungry. I'm, I'm so thirsty. I've I got to have something to drink. And God says, speak to that rock, Moses. Water will come out. You can give the people something to drink. Moses, angry, ticked off, right? What does he do? Grabs his staff and smashes that rock just like probably you and I would have done. God had mercy on them. Water still came out and supplied the people with a quench of their thirst. But I think John mentions the fact that this water flowed from Jesus' side to help us picture that there wasn't a thirst that was quenched for a temporary time, but the thirst of our lives is quenched for eternity from Jesus. The water the bread of life, all our hunger, all our longing for things that this world can't satisfy is satisfied in Jesus. The rest of it will let us down. Think about this quote as we wrap it up from Charles Spurgeon. Stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you've been cleansed. See the thorn crown. Mark his scourged shoulders still gushing with crimson rills. See hands and feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the thrilling shriek, my God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? If you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you've never seen it. If you're not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. Let's pray. Dear God, we are thankful for your son. You gave your son, your one and only son, as a sacrifice for us. And I pray that we are challenged, not just convicted, but challenged and most importantly, forever changed as a result of looking at the cross. That we will be able to see that you offer us so much more than the world has to offer. And if there's anybody in this room, Lord God, that doesn't know you, I pray that they will even know today that they can trust in you as their Savior. Believe that what you've done and what you've said is true and that you accomplished all that on the cross and ultimately the resurrection, conquering death, showing your power over death. Lord, help us to be changed today. Help us to be convicted and really spend this time as we sing together, being able to meditate on what you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.